Hello everyone and welcome to episode 6 of Ignite the Flame Audio. For those of you who know how we roll by now, just going to take you through how the episode is laid out. Basically we have a chapter being read to you, in this case from our most recent novel, A Light in the Mist. Then we have a section known as The Origin of Ideas, where we discuss the inspirations that are brought up in the chapter and how they came to be. Then we have another section known as Tips of the Trade, which is where we discuss helpful hints and tips for people who are aspiring to be authors themselves. So without any further ado, let's get straight into it. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Ignite the Flame Audio, where our hope is to bring people together one word at a time. Follow me, Wayne Telford, into the depths of your imagination. A Light in the Mist Chapter 6 A Day to Remember The drains burst into life with a mixture of liquid and subsolid solution, causing panic and disorientation as it erupts from their bars. The guards slip and lose their footing across the floor, and as the wooden horse works its way, James frees himself with the shard of flint given to me by Miss Pine. As the rope begins to fray and sever, James loosens its grip on his neck, prying it away. Meanwhile, the executioner attempts the lever, and with a gasp of breath, I spray baking powder from my mouth into his eyes, temporarily blinding him. In the struggle, I subdue the executioner with my bound hands, whilst the throng of people hold the accompanying officers at bay. James pours the gunpowder into our shackles and ignites them, freeing us from the bonds that caged our usually free spirits. In the panic and confusion, the guards struggle to maintain order. Oh, how chaos can prove such an ally! But with gunshots aimed in our direction, human shields were welcome despite the danger. As a shot ricochets off of the trapdoor mechanism, I fall, but to my surprise, James had been working on my rope, and the snap came not of my neck, but of the twine itself. A bitter irony, I should think. As more and more solution pours from the drains, it becomes apparent that someone was on the inside. Guards rush to investigate, and are thwarted by barricades of clumped human bodies, all trying to wiggle and squirm their way out of this daring situation. As I free my neck and unsheath my head, the glimpse of sunlight is at first overbearing, but soon, realization strikes, and I use the rope to entangle several guards, now setting on our position. James delivers the final blow, using the last of the powder to set the monstrous contraption ablaze with fire, it being covered in straw from the boots of the dead, helped a great deal, and soon even the authorities are forced to retreat from its untamed rage. We leap into action and blend in with the crowd, each one a different group of fleeing people. Several guards pursue us, so much so that the drain cover is more than occupied. My plan come to a halt. Why now? However, I had to improvise, otherwise we would indefinitely be in for worse. With the taste of baking soda in my mouth, it seemed all was bitter, but we venture on regardless and look frantically for an alternate escape route. As we find a wall and climb a conveniently placed ladder, we ascend between its constraints and jump without pausing for thought, diving into a nearby river system deep enough to sail, and as we take on fire from overhead, the foam from the sewers covers our retreat, and the order to cease fire is issued. As we grow out of range and bear no sign of slowing, 
We swim to the other side. The noise of rabid canines fills the air, and our scent looms, but the water will help to mask it, and it will become all the harder with the sewers being our next agenda. Tired but alive, we run across logs and bridges alike, being pursued, as if the price on our heads would cost the guards their livelihood. We hide in a small embankment, and tuck ourselves into the remnants of a drowned burrow, hoping to avoid further confrontation. As the dogs draw closer, I pray they not find us, for the punishment would be far worse than death. The warden would see to that. We calm our breath and submerse, holding out for as long as possible. I signal James to rise, and he signals back that the area is clear of dogs. The danger had passed, but I knew all too well of the law's persistence, and being of the law myself, I knew that this was far from over. We run on to the riverbed, and each bridge we submerge, hoping for the public's negligence. As my mind conceives the distance over time needed in submerse, or else we'd be spotted, and attention would be drawn. I never thought I would welcome the ignorance of the public, but for now, I craved it. As we move further down river, the reeds thicken, and each one masks our scent with its own, despite entangling us in its coils, like a serpent long since lying in wait. Then a voice calls to us. Over here, as if a signal. But to who? Us or the police? We follow to the source through the broken reeds and rapid current, edging ever closer to a whisper of hope. Had we escaped, or was it a trap so sincere we dare not question its motive? James' looks of approval settles me contently. Jekyll, this is the fellow you told me of? But I didn't know he had escaped as well. All part of the agreement, James. You see, this man has secured our exit in return for a very personal gift. A second chance. Yes. I aided in the sabotage of the ropes, and the attention drawn to the cook in order for the guards to pursue. I also went about placing the ladder on the wall, which I had borrowed from a contact of mine on the exterior. And how did you escape? Whilst the guards were preoccupied with yourselves, I saw fit to indulge in your plan, Jekyll, and escaped through the hatch in the main courtyard. Do not fear. I was not followed. All are probably back into order by now, with such faith in the constabulary. Glad to know my plan worked for you, then, sarcastically I remarked. Well, I saw an opportunity. Besides, if I had stayed in that courtyard, I would have been discovered and shot on sight. Do you hear me? Not so loud. The guards may hear you if you are not cautious. I assure, with my heart beating like the drums of that infernal prison and anxiety taking a whole new hold. Come, we must leave while our tracks are cold toward the law, lest they find and engage us once more. You're right. Follow me. I know a shortened path, and have arranged a little transportation. Via my contacts. That may aid your escape, gentlemen. As if holding all the answers to our problems, and seeming like an unpunished veteran who had attempted escape many times before, but had failed in each due to a lack of inspiration involved. Why are you so keen to help us? This cannot be because of a checkers game. What did you bet for Grace's sake? You sold? No. As a matter of fact, your friend holds that answer, looking at me as if holding a deep and revealing secret which I would soon uncover. Well, Jekyll, what is it of which he speaks? Well, James, I said if he aided us, I would ensure his safety and reunite him with his family once more. But you do not know his family personally, Jekyll. With a vague gesture, I must say. You have much to learn, my friend. Much to learn. I imply, 
as if communicating behind James' back and plotting in his absence, withholding important information. But what? I believe I could shed some light. All will be revealed once we reach the sewers. You have my word, as an honourable criminal. That had about as much trust to it as a rabbit being tended to by wolves. But we had not been betrayed thus far, and perhaps we could help him in his reuniting with his family. After all, he had gone to such lengths to ensure our escape. It's the least we could do to repay his kindness. Such is life, even when all seems to betray and corrupt around you. Comradeship always shows, and family remains, no matter the distance you are apart. You are still a part of them. As we reach the sewer systems, the pursuit becomes more intensified, with officers of all kinds whistling and chasing us, some on horseback across the fields of heather and chalk. With each bound of our legs, my speed ever increasing, we follow our spirit home, fleeing in all manner of directions, attempting to throw off the scent, spacing and regrouping, trying to confuse our trackers into submission, and after every mound of earth and plants, I think of what life may be like back home. Had we not fallen into this prison facility, we were far from home, on the outskirts of London, but homeward bound all the same, and as we draw near to victory, the sewers beckon, their entrance overgrown and entangled in reeds and wandering ivy. As we struggle to pry from the pipe walls, the sound of footsteps approaches, and our friend withdraws a revolver. Had he been an enemy from within? Had we been betrayed once more? No. He turns and nods me into recognition, and in acknowledgement I urge James to continue. Soon police are upon us, and as we hear the sound of gunshot, we realise our ally has been hit. Only a flesh wound, but still. You've been hit in the lumbar region of your spine. Come, we must forge on. Dig deep. No, it's okay. It's better this way. Thank you, Jackal. James, for fulfilling your part of the arrangement. No. I will be reunited with my family, and never to be imprisoned again. Thank you. Each of you. I pray safety on you both. Now go. I will hold him at bay, as long as I am able. Just remember, no matter what mistakes people make, they can't change if they have it in their heart. Go on now, before I die in vain. And with his last words, we remove the last of the cover from the entrance and are home free. I turn and look upon our fallen comrade, with every fibre of my being wanting to fight and die by his side. But remembering his words, I carry on, so as to ensure his death was not for nothing. As we draw to the darkened omega of the tunnel and reach the ladder leading underground, we hear the final shot and grow silent in remembrance. The rain falls and floods the tunnel, carrying all manner of debris and sent with it. A god sent on this day of sacrifice, one friend's life, in return for another. It's these reasons why I object to war. Why should two opposing sides fight over a similar end, when they could negotiate to share it instead? What do you have there, Jekyll? A map of a sort? James inquires, as I wipe the tears from my eyes so as not to betray my allegiance to the law. Yes, James. A map of the sewers, directing us in the most uninhabited areas, whilst also ensuring our escape in whatever transport he had arranged. See that? He. I do not even know his name of birth. 
His name was Gerald Jekyll. He signed it at the bottom, and he was one of the bravest men I'd ever met. Despite being blamed for his family's death, he pronounced his innocence, and after that, out of courage, he will die to me innocent and a soldier. Yes, he will be remembered for his sacrifice and our victory. He will have a plaque commemorating his valour. You will see. But he is with us in spirit, and Bloodsnitch still has to be found. So, James, I am counting on you. Which way, old friend? This way, Jekyll. And keep your wits about you, or else you may fall into deep trouble. And we smell vulgar enough as it is. Well, yes, <laughs> but it helps mask our odour from those hellacious dogs, not to mention the police officers. As we move further and further into darkness, it becomes clear the need for a light source is growing. However, perhaps my talents could be of use. If I tell you what I can envisage, James, you lead me in the right orientation. Direction. Okay? What are you, Jekyll? Some kind of mole hoping to sense his way out? No, my friend. A mole who can see his way out. We forge onward as the shards of gold glisten brighter at each correct turn. I call out to James, naming objects and signposts to act as landmarks in order to obtain Flint's assurance. My vision grows clearer with each turn, and soon I am leading James to our destination. You both on peaceful terms now then, Jekyll. I thought you were going to fight its influence. If you mean my brain, then yes, I have surrendered, and no, I have stopped fighting as it helps me to achieve far more than ever before. And better yet, I feel like I can do anything as a result of it. Feeling proud of myself, I collide with a pipe. I suppose that will teach me for being big-headed and overconfident in my abilities. As we persist through the muck and turmoil of the town's waste, shunning rats and all manner of disease-ridden creatures out of the way so as not to catch a plague, only to spread once we reach the surface, it was a good thing my legs were healed when they did, or else... I would be on the other side by now, and with that knowledge we forge on, knowing that life for us had begun anew and started as soon as Bloodsnitch was brought to justice. We navigate through the contorted bars as a spider's lair entangled with the strongest of silk. We finally focused on our desired pipe exit. Brewery pipe for council engineers and train personnel only. Here we are, James. Now we will have to be silent, and as shadows on the wall or we will have to stage all of this a second time. I don't know about you, but I am quite satisfied with the single occurrence. As am I, Jekyll. But which brewery does this lead to? The Crown, or perhaps the Jolly Wench? Well, I will bet you will know once we open this hatch, my friend. Shh, shh. Look, we appear to have company. As we open the hatch and peer out into the lavatory quarters, we overhear the conversation of McCline in the next room. Well, if you happen to see them, let us know. We'll be much obliged, and there's a reward included for the person who does find them. As the police leave, we exit, I monitoring the door, whilst James gathers himself from the pipe. All we do now, Jekyll, the whole city is looking for us. How will we hope to evade all of them? Maybe not all of them, my dear boy. Come, we must take to the back alleys. I think I know of someone who can help, or at least he helped me once before. As we head for McCain's dwelling, the sound of town criers plagued the streets as though expecting the end and provided the perfect covering for our less than subtle approaches. 
Lord knows how we escaped from prison. But why question when everything bodes well? I tap the door, looking frantically around for any signs of life that may pose a threat. After all, we were fugitives and wanted dead, so anyone could be our undoing. As the door creaks open, McCain ushers us inside. Come, come, gentlemen, come inside before you grow ill. The door closes, and we are wrapped in towels from his dryer, keeping not only our bodies but our spirits warm and dry. You gentlemen appear to have been through the wars. I cannot believe McLean fell for such nonsense. But you know people, always thinking with their rear ends rather than the right end. <laughs> Let me fetch you some fresh clothing. It may not fit, but it will have to do until you return home, at least. As McCain gathers the clothing, we catch up on some well-deserved rest, laughing the pain to memory. Here you are, gentlemen. Try these on for size, and do not despair. If they do not fit, they can be tailored. Thank you, McCain. I do not know what we would do without your hospitality. We had half expected you to... turn you in? No, Jekyll. Who do you take me for? A Benedict Arnold? As a matter of fact, your gut must smile upon you. How so? McLean had only just left, and I told him I have no business with his kind. My expertise is with the dead. Anyway, there is plenty of refreshment upstairs, if you would not mind cleaning up. One should take pride in their appearance. And, in addition, you would be intrigued as to how one differs in look, especially when your likeness is on every street corner for miles. An advantage indeed. And I would like to lose this facial hair and regain my youthful appearance. As will I. James states, caressing his impressive moustache and sideburn combination. Thank you for your kindness again, McCain. It is most hard to find loyalty in these days. Loyalty? <laughs> Just looking after your health, Jekyll. James? Doing my duty? Yes, I assure you. There is a personal satisfaction seeing you both well again. I clean myself anointing with all kind of scents and lotions, carving the ruggedness from my face, and replenishing my features with masterful detail, James doing similar in an opposing room, the door secured for privacy. He maintains his moustache, whilst I undertake a cleaner, shaven approach, tidying my sideburns and hair alike, my odour now one of leather and fine perfumes, teeth cleaned and health regulated. Who would imagine all this chaos to be a few days' worth? As I adorn myself in the most comfortable of dressings, with freshly ironed edges, the waistcoat, tie, and overcoat, fitting as if all pieces of the same grand puzzle, I notice a poster bearing our resemblance and names. We would have to move unnoticed throughout London, but to do that, well, we would have to be invisible. I had talents, but becoming unseen to the naked eye, even I had my limits. And James cannot even disappear in the dark, the poor fellow. As we fill ourselves with tea and crumpets, we think to what lies ahead. The apprehension of the murderer, the identity of the infamous bloodsnitch, and the clearing of our names. But to achieve such an end, we would have to be cautious, as we were being watched, not just by one this time, but hundreds. As we gather the last of our possessions, I come across some old photographs. They do not mean anything to me, 
but somehow they are familiar, as if a piece of a puzzle long since forgotten was finally found. I would reveal what I was aware of when the timing was right, but for now, now was a time for redemption, a time for confession, a time for prosecution. As we open the door, the wind picks up strength, holding us in our position, but no matter what obstacle comes against us, this time we will succeed, and we force through, with our collars folded upward, trying to hide our suspicion from the public. Jekyll, follow me. I know of a way around, that no policeman will ever think to look. Where, James? It is not as though the sewers are an option. We've just cleaned our persons. No, old friend. An idea, though. No, this is an underground system, built during the time of the Georgians. Although, with those wigs, it's a wonder they achieved anything. I think you will find only the upper class wore wigs, my dear fellow. And what's more, these tunnels can aid us, so do not forsake them. We leave. Headed for the tunnel entrance, a rotting cellar door with a wooden barricade blocking our entry. As we pry it from its rusted joints, the doors open and the air is drawn in from behind, as if untouched for several hundred years. All manner of death and decay grip the stairs, leading to the abyss filled with darkness and cobwebs as far as the eye would allow. How could you know of these, James? Let us just say, Jekyll, a very close friend of mine built them. And with a hush, James turns his attention forward, pushing his way through the unknown, taking small steps so as to correct himself should he stumble. He trips several times, and luckily I am there to aid in preventing his collapse. However, I myself slip, and anxiously look backward and forward, and all manner of directions, seeking an area where we may no longer be pursued for our apparent unjust actions. The wind howls through the winding tunnel, and bays at our presence, as if a wolf dancing among the flames of the torches that illuminate our now only escape. As we remove the torch from its hold, it reminds me of the one leading to the lair with which we met criminals of all kinds, but this was not that pathway. This was far greater, both in ornation and time consumption. We back ourselves as each wrong turn leads us into further disarray, but soon the torches do not just illuminate the corridors, but our minds as well. I think I have it, James. Just follow the illuminated tunnels, and we will reach our destination. By the way, where does this system end? Well, that's just it, Jekyll. It does not end. There are entrances and exits all across London, and each one is as easy as the other to unlock and navigate. Well, if it is so easy, then explain how we keep appearing to be lost. Tell me that. Yeah, uh, quite. Well, actually, I don't know where I'm going. I just didn't want you to think me a failure, was all. As I lay my hand on James' back, Look, if you had just told me this, I could have helped. But you being stubborn did not help either of us. Better to admit we need help and deal with our limitations than ignore help and welcome rejection and torment. Sometimes old James could be as stubborn as an ox, but he would learn in time how to accept help. But first, he would have to come to the place and first admit he needed it. We urge on, leaving behind our torches so as not to play havoc with our eyes in this low light, and I turn to another sense to help us. My sense of hearing. I hear the sound of shops and pets overhead, with conversations and riders communicating with each other. Now I know how creatures that dwell underground must feel. I focus on the noise of horse-drawn carriages, remembering back to the royal household, possessing several whilst not in use. 
It provided a good bearing for our sense of direction. I hear the flapping of wings and calls of pigeons, but one seems familiar. Was I mad? How could I tell one pigeon's voice from another? I could not be that in tune, could I? As we near the above-ground entrance, the flapping becomes more frequent, as if by divine intervention. As we open the doors and remove the cover, a pigeon dives from above and targets our faces, causing us to fall back into the tunnel, and just as well, as we evade our second group of police officers, all looking to claim our pelts for a rich reward. That was too close, eh, Jackal? Yes. All thanks to this fellow. We live to see another day. Thank you, dear creature. Wait, James, don't you recognise him? It's Gerald's pigeon with the markings and foot. Oh, I never thought we would see you again. But wait, he's holding a message. As we contain our excitement, I realise it was a trap set by a devious mind, and as I unravel the scroll from underneath the cover, it's torn from its cadavers, and police with weaponry manoeuvre us from our current position. A secluded room, filled with officers and dim lights, almost inferring a gathering of some secret society. I should have known better than to trust it. It has probably been following us the entire way. Well then, go on. Take us away for a crime which we played no part in. The room quietens, and the police withdraw, as if to give us a sporting chance. Steps begin to echo from within their formidable ranks, like the judge's gavel all over again. How could we have come this far, only to be knocked down again? Greetings, gentlemen. I am Sergeant McLean, and you unfortunately have been entangled in quite a vicious ordeal. You see, when I arrived in London two weeks ago, I found myself reading a letter signed by the perpetrator, Bloodsnitch. Soon after, I found myself half-naked, with only my undergarments and ropes to keep me company inside an abandoned stable. It was not pleasing to the eye, or the nose, to say the least. But don't worry, certain attributes helped to define my character, and this helped officers Dolts and Schumann work it out. The assailant was hung earlier this morning. A great plan to have you two in his place, but obviously he underestimated you. Ah, you must be Inspector Jackal. I must say your reputation precedes you. And Flint, is it? I've heard many a tale of your death-defying acts in the name of justice. It's a pleasure to meet your acquaintance. But now you can rest assured your names are hereby cleared of false atrocities, and by the power vested in me, by the law of this great nation, I reassign you both to the case, and demand your presence at the royal household. Follow me, and we will show you how the real McLean deals with a case this devious. I knew something was not right with McLean, but I could not help but wonder whether this was all a farce in order to belay admitting he was wrong. But whatever its nature, I was almost glad to see him back. Where to first, Jackal? Flint asks McLean, as though we hold all of the playing cards once more and prepare for hours of scheming to be told, the consequences to be carried forth. The town hall, please, McLean. Sorry, Sergeant. And we must be fast. I can feel Bloodsnitch within our grasp this time. As I clench my fists and ponder over victory, finally bringing redemption rather than humiliation to my family name, to be a success rather than a failure. To be as I was supposed to be. Inspector Isaac Jackal. Town Hall, our next stop, Jackal. But why do you wish to go there? All in good time, Sergeant. Have patience, and all will be revealed. The entire plan from beginning to end awaits, and what I look forward to most is the Omega. 
not just of this case, but of Bloodsnitch. Ah, greetings again, gentlemen. Here to find someone else. Someone who exists. <laughs> Forgive me. I can tell this is a matter of importance. Who would you like me to locate for you? An old friend, I reply. And surprisingly, the bookkeeper knew exactly what I meant. Where to now, Jekyll? 141 Fleet Street, my dear boy. That was their last address, according to the bookkeeper. McLean urges the driver with some force, and life passes by, as if costing coin each minute that was used. Well, Jekyll, I hope you know there are several restorations occurring at this end of London, and we will need to be aware of all of them. James inquires, knowing more than I did over the city. I really must get out more and explore this world I hold so dear. We arrive at 141, but its number reveals its age. It's a partially collapsed building with great areas of weakness present across its foundations. If we were to circumnavigate its contents, we would have to be wary of our surroundings at all times. As we ascend the rotting steps, I walk as if on shards of glass, applying little pressure so as not to misplace the balls. The door, so ornate once, peeling paint and allowing its numbers to hang loose rather than proud. The letter compartment destroyed, and panels missing. Who could inhabit such a house? Exploring further, I remain vigilant, as anything in this household could fall, and lead to the collapse of the entire structure, while searching for clues to the owner's whereabouts. It appears abandoned, Jekyll. I don't know what you hope to find, or who, for that matter. Patience, James. I think I know. My senses never fail me, and besides, this is not the house. It's not? No, my friend. This is just a cover to something much smaller, and as I open the door to the basement, I reveal to James, this is the house. We enter with caution. Despite being a friend, they could turn on us in a second, after discovering their hiding place. Hello? It's Jekyll and Flint. We need your help one last time to lay all of this to rest once and for all. With a smile they agree, and at last my final chess piece was in motion. My enemy's undoing could begin. McLean, I would like you to escort everyone to the royal household that played a part in this ordeal, and then let them make themselves comfortable. We will join you, and escort them home, eliminating them one by one from this case, one at a time, to ensure no mistakes are made. Better yet, we will escort them to Scotland Yard to await interrogation and find the guilty amongst them. Very well, Jekyll. I will tend to it personally, and pass the word to every cart in the district to do the same. McLean reaches for a telephone on the wall, but alas, it has been disconnected for some time. This may take some time, Jekyll. Whilst I search for a telephone, you get back in my cart and await further instruction. As you wish. We proceed and follow instructions. Highly unlike me, but I was a changed man after all this. Myself, James, and our friend enter the vehicle and prepare ourselves for a long evening indeed. Well now, that's that out of the way. Where is our next destination, Jekyll? As McLean opens the front door, seating himself abruptly, as if pursued by someone. Mr. and Mrs. Ilias Furs and Wares Incorporated, Sergeant, and we had better be quiet in our approach to each destination. I've had enough running to last me a lifetime. Quite right, Jekyll. We're not being rewarded for running. That's McLean's duty. <laughs> Here, watch your tongue. No, I'm only pulling you. <laughs> for a second, he seemed awfully convincing. But that must be one of the personal traits he told us about. 
with which Dalton Schumann would have never guessed the fake MacLean was a forgery. We arrive, and the street grows stone cold, with the lamps dimming and window clattering against the walls in the blustery winds. We struggle to gather ourselves, but finally, with a knock on the door, the first are obtained, and I look forward once more to revealing this secret to the world, not for personal gain, but to see how the purest of emotions can have a darker side. Good evening, Mr. Elias. Is your wife with you? Yes. What is this about, Inspector? I thought the case was solved, and I proven innocent. I will be the judge of that, if you do not mind, Mr. Elias. Now, where is your wife? I am here, Inspector, ready for your jurisdiction, and afterward you'll owe both of us an apology in the light of our innocence. Madam, if I am wrong, I will apologize vigorously, but until that time, would you be so kind as to accompany us to the police station? With a sinister grin of my own, their expression turns to worry, as if hiding a darkness almost forgotten. Mind your head. You would not want a lack of memory hitting at our appointed time. Now would we? The door closes, and we ride on to our next destination. The dental surgery, please, Sergeant. A bit late for a check-up, eh, Jackal? Make haste, Sergeant. The sooner we can bring this to a close, the sooner we can return home and succumb to normality. Or vaguely normal, I suppose. With seriousness gripping my every word, we rush through the streets, the skies ablaze with fire, from the sunset, and streets equally consumed by cries and all manner of law enforcement. As we draw closer to the dentist's surgery, it becomes increasingly obvious that something is not right. A moment when time ceases to travel had occurred. One so vile, that claims so many each year, and reaps death for its reward. Suicide. The door gapes wide, slamming backwards and forwards as we time our entry. There he lays. Mr. Boldsketch, adorning his practitioner's table with neck longing for air, but all that fills is blood. The culprit? Himself. A sharp tool plunged into the trachea would be enough to silence anyone. But now I had lost a key witness. And for what? We must live our lives with no regret, and the actions we partake in should not drive us to madness, nor this. Instead, we should accept the consequences, pick ourselves up, and encourage ourselves, because in this world, it's hard to find those who care of your life, and what obstacles you may face. But think, who do I live for? Myself? Or the countless others that care for me and cherish me? That enjoy my company and help me in my struggles? Do not face your darkness alone. Why give death the satisfaction? Life is worth the living. You just have to deem yourself worthy of it. You can achieve. Fall in love obtain a profession, and even become famous. And in so doing, you lay down the foundations of your legacy. Why end your story too soon, when the most amazing moments lie ahead, the things you long for and commit this act over, prevent it chance to find you? Will you give it that chance? Or, as Bold Sketch lies there, I cannot help but think, what a waste of such an incredible life. However, I cannot judge one's life unless I myself have lived it. But alas, that is why I try to help. Because once, I did live it. Are you all right, Jekyll? James asks, whilst enshrouding me in his shadow. Yes, 
I am fine. I just cannot help but feel regret that I could not have done more. He made his choice, Jekyll, and unfortunately we cannot do anything for him. Not now, anyways. With a sigh of sorrow, I place my hand over his eyes, closing them, so it may at least appear as though he crossed in peace, despite his eyes were filled with consequence and fear. For his sake, it was probably best I hid them. However, no matter how we masked his death, one of us would feel his loss far greater than any other, and that I was not looking forward to. No! 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 As Mrs. Ilias beats against Boldsketch's body, I attempt to lay my hand upon her shoulder. I am sorry for your loss, Mrs. Ilias, but you should have foreseen this, especially after the part you played in all of this. What in all of hell are you talking about? He is dead, and it is your entire fault. Is it, ma'am? Let us evaluate that remark, shall we? First, how about you come clean? and admit the shadow leaving your house on the night of the murder was none other than Bold Sketch. Or perhaps I should address you by the name he referred to you as. Miss Idlewin. What? Jackal? How can you be sure? Allow me to elaborate, Sergeant. Mrs. Ilias left her house with her apparent husband. There she spent all night getting drunk on fine wines and talked with many a lovely lady, when in fact none recall Mrs. Ilias ever being present. Only a Miss Idlewin. The second was the apparent disappearance to the female lavatory, when one of the customers distinctly remembers you walking into the hall, the scene of the murder, and leaving, feeling faint, well, let me assume, you, madam. It was not due to the consumption of alcohol, but shock from your first murder. That's preposterous, Mr. Ilias implies, as if to shun my work that I had endured so much to achieve and James so hard to protect. On the contrary, sir, she then placed the gloves worn by yourself in her waste disposal, and that is what I happened to come across right before receiving a blow to the head by none other than your wife, for knowing too much. I had to be extinguished. So it was her who attacked me, and all, Jekyll. No, James, not guilty, I'm afraid. She could not have been in two places at once, despite her elaborate hoaxes and alias names. No. That assault was perpetrated by another. To continue, after assaulting me, you then proceeded to the police station and handed in the gloves, which now bore my fingerprints within the material. So your original plan to frame your husband was subject to change, was it not? No, you rotten pig! You had to take the fall instead. I could not have you ruin everything. Our lives would have been so much better without Jim to mess everything up. But you failed to account for us, didn't you? And now justice will catch up to your actions, namely, adultery. So where does Bolt Sketch fit into all of this? Well, Sergeant, I will tell you. As I was having my teeth observed, Bolt Sketch possessed a smell of ash upon his person. Now, knowing he did not smoke a pipe, narrowed the prospect down. But to find the same ash on the window sill, as well as hiding it so advantageously, confirmed my suspicions. Bold sketch was the arsonist. His knowledge of alcohols came into use during fillings and other such procedures. It does not take much to pour alcohol on a fire, with plenty of paper to feed on as well as us. He simply threw a lit cigar and dealt with the matter. Luckily enough, we escaped and pursued a different lead. Miss Idlewin. 
This allowed for the two of you to conspire further and have us dealt with by taking the fall for your heinous acts. Yes, I admit it. Take me away. Are you happy? Now, there is nothing worth living for. You have seen to that. You son of a... You have the right to remain silent. And seeing as you have nothing to live for, it will make your next actions all the more easier, then, will it not? Take her away, officers, and we must forge on, as the true vindicator of this sadistic case has yet to be apprehended. I do not understand, my love. Why? Love. What do you mean, love? You never loved me. You only loved my money. And what marriage is that? Bold sketch. I mean, Jack and I were going to go far away and begin a new life. With you out of the way, we could start fresh with a family, and that so-called love, you call it, would be returned to me as soon as you hung. How is that for love? Well, ironically, you will be the one in your husband's place. What you sow, you will undoubtedly reap. As I lay my hand on Mr. Ilya's shoulder, he turns to me with a look of thanksgiving and grief combined. And as he withdraws from my touch, all I can do is pray comfort in his hour of need. Sorry to rush, Jekyll, but we are needed elsewhere. Although, with the role you're on, I'm beginning to think you solved this alone, huh? Nonsense, my friend. I would be lost without you. You know that. Besides, if it were not for you, I would not have found the evidence in which to support my claims. Sergeant, onto the bank, with haste. Bloodsnitch awaits, and I would hate to be late for his prosecution. Whose prosecution, Jekyll? Not who, James. What's prosecution? The prosecution of Bloodsnitch will require many. And with an obsessive amount of force, McLean coaxes the horses into full stride toward the bank. Would Bloodsnitch await us? Or would we be walking into another trap to cause further delay, just when everything started to add up? Only time would tell. Well, here we are, Jekyll. Would you prefer this exit point, or a more secluded one? He will be just fine. The smell of burning wheel coverings leads. As a motor vehicle jettisons itself from behind the bank. Do you wish us to pursue, Jekyll? Drop us here, Sergeant, and then by all means pursue that vehicle. As we leap from our seats of comfort to the brace of the cold pavement, McLean gallops off in chase of the mystery vehicle. Meanwhile, I was thinking of the wooden horse of Troy again, and perhaps it was to be a diversion. We ascend the stairs, now acting as a waterfall, with the heavy downpour that bombard the street. It hid our already loud entrance, so I do not complain. It presents itself as sheets of water moving swiftly, as if a torrent of silk edging its way through the street, devouring every drain in its path. The sky is grey and powerful as a mountain, shifting in shape to reveal somewhat vague images that wreak havoc with my imagination. Faces appearing, animals of all sorts, and that symbol it begins. As I shake my head, I realise one could catch pneumonia in this persistent wet, so we make for cover and try to keep dry. Well, what should we do, Jekyll? Wait for the sergeant to return, or attempt it ourselves. I think we should wait for assistance, James, after all. We do not want to be blamed for another fire, now do we? In this weather, you'd be lucky to strike a match. Ah, yes. 
but the bank does not possess an open roof now, does it? Oh, Jekyll, always one step ahead. But James was right. The fire would be quenched as the previous had given rise to renovations of the ceiling compartments, so despite the workers' best efforts, the rains would persist and prevent any fire. Can you hear that, James? A ticking of a clock or watch. No, Jekyll, but if you can hear it, then let us find its source, shall we? Yes. In this case you are right, James. It could provide further answers to our investigation, and perhaps my suspicions as well. We proceed, following its haunted charm through the columns to the door, and as we near, James reveals, Now I hear it, Jekyll. It sounds big, whatever it is. Couldn't be the bank's clock tower, could it? I do not think so, James. I believe it's something far more sinister in nature. An explosive device. Jekyll, let me. I'm well versed in explosive disarmament, and if I fail you, you'll be the one to finish this case. James, don't talk of such things. We will handle this together and render it futile in time for McLean's return, I assure you. I push the door, and hear the strain of a copper filament against its opening, as if to explode upon entry. James, there are probably several of these devices scattered around the bank, and must be deactivated in turn. Carefully. I hear you, Jekyll. I was just beginning to enjoy my hands. Didn't want to lose them. <laughs> Quite. Well, a deep breath, and pass me a pair of cutting tools, or singeing irons, please, my friend. Here you are, Jekyll. These are the longest I own. Well, I guess we have lived full lives, but we cannot end it here. There is so much to do. Carefully. Carefully. I maintain the closing of my eyes, as if for the device to implode upon opening them. But to my satisfaction, it is subdued. And as I wipe the sweat from my face, I hear the door creak open. James peeks round to gaze at the hideous contraption. A clock tethered via a copper wire to several canisters of a clear liquid. But what was its identity? Only James was sure. Nitroglycerin. Highly explosive, Jekyll. It would certainly ruin any plans of an entry, that's for sure. Well, thank goodness we had deactivated the device. But several more would have to be dealt with. However, which would be the best place to start? Upstairs? Or perhaps the foundations? The vault? Or roof? I think we should check the vault, James, and make sure no funds have been stolen. After all, my fortune was invested within these walls, and I would be a fool not to protect it. As we near the vault, crawling down the stairs at a steep angle, and worried that any misplaced step could lead to a nasty fall, that ticking continues, and there it is. The bank vault with inscriptions of all kinds holding the lifeblood of our great nation and empire. Covered in explosives, from the solid metal hinges to the opening device itself, time to detonate in less than sixty seconds. We must move quickly, Jekyll, or else we'll be blown to the heavens and back. Well, at least we would be the first to reach them. <laughs> Sorry, trying to relieve some of the pressure. We work with purpose, I holding the tools whilst James relinquishes the master control. Why have it, Jekyll? What? What do you have? If I move the hands, it will bide us more time. I do not think it works that way, James. Just concentrate. You can do it, and you have thirty seconds. That is plenty of time. What was I saying? Plenty of time. I begin to utter my last words. For God to have mercy and grant divine wisdom. But why would we be blessed with such things when we had already caused so much ruin for others? Got it. I told you I knew about these things, Jekyll.
Well done, you two. That was a fine job. But alas, you did not prolong the inevitable. I did. Why would I need to destroy the vault when I am already aware of the combination? Oh, how you have fallen straight into my trap. And it's not the first time. I mean, did you have a fulfilling taste for justice? After I show you kindness and consideration, an easy way out, you have to meddle and escape. But all in vain, my friends, for you have overlooked one very important piece of the puzzle. And what might that be? Oswald Finch. As he creeps out from the darkness, the light reflecting off of his metallic revolver, with ornate design and inscribed nozzle. Well done, Jekyll. You figured it out. But I'm afraid you're a little too late. My accomplices still run free, giving the law a chase they will not soon forget, drawing them further and further away. <laughs> but I cannot help but wonder, how did you figure it out? I mean... I thought for certain I'd hidden my identity very well. Not well enough, Finch. And what of the fake McCline? You'll soon share his fate. Ha! You think a mere rope can stop blood snitch? You could not be more mistaken than you with your high-class upbringing, eh? And you, the unappreciated second-in-command. How that is for gratitude. Don't you wish you had more? I suppose not. You both came from elegance, but me? No. I had to live in the dirt. Scraping a living on the backs of my masters and lords. Stealing what I could to survive to the next morning. Do you have any idea what that is like? To try and raise a family in the rubbish your kind leaves behind. A rotten apple does not fall far from the tree. What do you mean by that, Jekyll? You know exactly what I mean. The one who set us up from the beginning and almost led us to our deaths. Your son. I wondered why he never uttered his name, and yet the fake MacLean knew all too well. Is that not right, Walter Potter? You can come out. I know you are here. Listening to our conversation like a shadow. Well, go on. Present yourself. Do you think me challenged? As if I would bring my own flesh and blood here to die in my place. No. Those two have been dealt with already. A tragic accident. But you are right, of course, Jackal. Always right, yes. I fell in love with Moira Potter when we were but children. We'd always dreamed of having a family, but could never afford to be together. Properly. Marriage and what not. So I sought an education while she raised our child. And in secret, if the church that is so holy were to find out, she would be burned. And that is merciful. So she kept her name and I became a bank clerk where I could exchange certain amounts of money from others that wouldn't miss it. Your kind of people. Soon after, I found my son making the same mistake I did, and falling in love at such a young age. So, to make use of a mistake, I offered him 
a partnership. You offered your illegitimate son a partnership in Bloodsnitch. The group of terror that has its minions all over London, in every sense of the word, an infestation of crime and deceit. Again, so clever. It's a shame. I could have used you. And James. And if you like, I could offer... Save your breath. I feel guilty for my actions, bringing judgment upon people, a cruel existence. But do not think for one second that I would shift my loyalty and die for the opposition. My allegiance lies with the law, and if it is to be, then I will die for what I believe to be right. A fine speech, but it falls upon a heart of stone. You try so hard to be appreciated, acknowledged and remembered, but all you are is another body, bearing a symbol. So in a sense, Jackal, we are not that different. Oh, we are. More than you know. I guess you're right. I mean, you carry a revolver, but would you have the nerve to kill? No. I think you wouldn't, and that is why we are different. For the record books, I think Flint is the only one here that would. With a breath and lowering of head, James knew deep down that he too could not bring himself to kill. No? Oh, too bad. Well, I guess we'll have to urge you to fight back then, won't we? What do you say, Jackal? Will you draw your weapon and face me like a man? Or recline and sheath like a coward? A real man walks from a fight, for he has nothing to prove. I agree with James. Killing us will only lengthen your sentence, Finch. My dear boy, how hard it is to make evidence lie. All I have to do is arrange your bodies into a position that appears as though you kill each other. And that stupid sergeant wouldn't know any different. Just like when I summoned him here. It was all a ruse to lure the greatest detectives, inspectors and lawmen away from their homes and eventually I would eradicate them. One by one. Giving Bloodsnitch full power over London and when the royals returned they would find themselves tossed out as the poor and lower class with the Empire under our control. And welcome to the origin of ideas section of this podcast. This is basically the section where we discuss the ideas that have been brought forth in the chapter previous and how they came to be. So getting straight off, the first we notice uh, in the beginning of the chapter is a reference to G.I. Joe Retaliation. For anyone who's seen that movie, there's a scene in the opening sequence where they basically get attacked by a load of helicopters as like a military group and their entire base gets like pretty much like destroyed. Basically, the three main characters, uh, including The Rock, basically they hide in a well and they submerge beneath the water and there's guards sort of patrolling after the attack to make sure there's no survivors and they sort of shoot into the well and like completely miss them. But all the while, they sort of hold their nerve underneath the water. And then as soon as the guards have passed, the rock sort of comes up and then he sort of makes a hand gesture for the others to come up. So this is a direct reference in the chapter when 
Jekyll and James and Gerald, to some degree, uh, sort of going under the water in the river. Uh, and they sort of maintain staying underneath uh, while the guards pass over them uh, and the dogs. The second is a reference to Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Uh, there's a moment where uh, the word vigorously is mentioned, and it's it's a reference to um, Johnny Depp's character. He plays the Mad Hatter, and um, basically there's a scene in it where he he turns around and he says, "I shall fotowaken vigorously," you know, and that was um, an amusing moment uh, for us. So again, it's a reference to a film, uh, as we've mentioned several times before. There are loads of like Easter eggs uh, to do with films, games, music that pop up in our our chapters, our books, you know, and they can be just as this one, you know, one word basically uh, that's taken from that. The third is McCain mentions uh, Benedict Arnold. Um, now, for anyone who studied history, uh, particularly American history, uh, you'll know that Benedict Arnold is one of the most revered traitors of history, uh, especially during the American War for Independence. Since that time, it basically becomes like the most coined phrase. If you're referring to an act of treachery, someone would refer to you as a Benedict Arnold. The fourth point is a reference to Poirot. Now, we reference Poirot um, quite often in this book, but this particular one is uh, a reference to his tactics. Uh, if you have read any of the Poirot novels, I highly recommend them from Agatha Christie. Uh, basically, toward the end of the story, Poirot, you know, and this is more evident in the television series uh, with David Suchet, uh, basically, at the end of the case, Poirot has this habit where he gets everyone in one room. He, he gathers everybody in the same room with a policeman in tow or, you know, the, the detective who's on the case, you know, the chief inspector. And basically, he just like tells the events. He tells the story based on the evidence that he's gathered. And basically, we take this similar approach, but more spread out. So instead of having everyone grouped in the same room, Basically, Jekyll goes to each person individually and tells their part of the story to them, basically in front of everyone. But it still illuminates the same sequence of events, just as Poirot does. And it just shows that, in this case, you can take from other detective novels and you can see the way that they handle a case and you can sort of even take some of their methods, so to speak, and apply them to your own characters. The final point is monologuing. Uh, this is a stereotypical move uh, made by a lot of antagonists in a story. Now, we mentioned this in the last episode. An antagonist is basically your bad guy. So, basically, what a bad guy will do at the end of any classic novel, you know, at the end of any sort of James Bond movie or anything like that, basically, the bad guy will always give the master plan, you know, for the destruction of the world and how he's going to defeat the main hero and all this kind of stuff. It's basically become almost a stereotype in itself. And we just felt the need when they confront Oswald Finch for him to basically have this monologue session, basically where he offers Jekyll a deal and Jekyll turns around and says, I'm not interested, you know, staying true to, to the good, even though he's seen life on both sides now, you know, so his perspective has somewhat changed. He still, you know, appreciates the law, even though it has forsaken him. Uh, he's not willing to sort of give up his convictions so we sort of display that through Oswald Finch's monologue, which then gets continued to some degree. But basically, it's it's a good way of getting across the bad guy's perspective. For the majority of stories, I will always try to sort of sympathize with the bad guy. So the monologue is a way of trying to understand that character as well and see how 
you know, sort of the reason behind the way that they're acting, the reason why they're acting the way they do. It helps to, to understand that character, even though they are meant to be the bad guy in every sense of the word. Okay, so that pretty much sums it up for this section. So let's go ahead and get into the next one. And welcome to the tips of the trade section of this podcast. Basically, this is the section where we discuss tips of the trade uh, for any aspiring authors who wish to go into authorship themselves. It covers basically everything from beginning an idea to basically getting yourself published. So carrying on from last episode, uh, we discussed characters and basically how to form them. So now we'll be going into the third part of our planning stage, which in my planning is known as backstory. So basically, backstory is the past for a character, uh, which is used to show why they are the way they are. So basically, uh, there are loads of examples of this, which we'll discuss a little bit further on. But basically, a backstory is used to clarify how a character or how your character perceives the world around them, how they relate to other people, how they react to other people. All these different sorts of things can be explained by the backstory and used in different ways to bring that character across. Um, and it can also be used for like adding a sense of drama to your story as well. The first example I want to use is uh, Detective Spooner, which is Will Smith's character from iRobot. Anyone who's seen iRobot, it's a good film. Basically... He has a backstory where he's involved in an accident and basically it involves like a truck colliding with his car and then his car bumps into another car and basically he finds himself and the person in the other car, which in this case happens to be a father and his little girl, in like a river or like underwater at least. And basically a robot's passing by and chooses to save him because it calculates that his chances of survival are a lot higher than the little girl's. But basically, Will Smith watches that little girl imprisoned in the car underwater and the car sinks. So he's forever traumatized by that moment. And it causes him to have a resentment toward robots and be untrusting toward robots throughout the story. And we're sort of given like inclinations toward those events. And then toward the end of the story, we actually get his full backstory so that you can understand why he has this hatred for robots. Uh, and it's just a fantastic uh, example of how you can use backstory to evaluate how a character responds to their surroundings and how their perspective of the world uh, is changed. Another example, this comes from a game, uh, is the character of Joel. In The Last of Us, anyone who's played The Last of Us, I can't recommend it enough. It is my favorite game of all time. Uh, it is a survival horror game. Uh, but even for people that aren't into the horror genre, it's a fantastic game. The storyline is so compelling. Basically, the first level, you're really put into this situation where you, you can't help but feel for the character of Joel. Now, I'm not going to ruin it because for anyone who hasn't played it, I would advise you to go and play it, um, even if you're not a gamer. But basically, for those of you who aren't gamers, it's an experience where you definitely understand why Joel is the way he is, like, throughout the storyline. He's very sort of enclosed. You know, he doesn't like to reach out to people. He's not very open with his feelings. You know, he's not... He's quite a reserved character. And the first level of the game definitely gives you the reason why for his backstory. 
Um, so this is a way that, you know, games can be used to portray backstory. And then we come to television series. Now, I watch uh, Frankie Drake Mysteries, which is basically created by the same guys that did Murdoch Mysteries. And basically the character of Frankie Drake, she was a spy uh, for Canada during the Second World War. And she had an experience where basically she, you know, was going to shoot someone, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. And then every time during that television series that she finds herself in that same situation, she's hesitant to pull the trigger. Um, and this is sort of like, it, it might be some reoccurring trauma. It might be, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, PTSD. Uh, it could be anything, but basically the backstory just helps to sort of illuminate that. And throughout the series, she tries to get help for it to sort of overcome that sense of um, her past haunting her, so to speak. A better example of explaining a backstory in a TV series is DC's Arrow. Now, again, I would highly recommend this series because I've, I've watched Arrow since season one. You know, I, I don't think it's sort of lost its luster all the way through. But basically, they describe Oliver Queen's uh, backstory. He, he spent five years on an island, basically, abandoned. Everybody thought he was dead. But he basically spends his time doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things, you know, from being in the Russian mafia to being... Uh, involved in covert operations, you know, to, to being trained with magic and all this different kind of stuff. Uh, and it just, like, throughout the different seasons, it sort of takes you through past memories, but in flashbacks. And it shows you, like, bits of his backstory, but they're pivotal enough that they explain his episode and how he reacts to his characters, how he reacts to the people around him, why he sees the world the way he does for that particular season because of what he's gone through. Uh, so it's just another way in which you can use backstory to sort of clarify the world around the character and clarify the characters themselves. And then obviously when you start having a multitude of characters, each with their own different backstories, it adds a sense of dynamic to the entire storyline. You know, you, you even get to the point where it's like The Walking Dead, where everybody has a backstory. They're all coming into it and, and they take their time, they take episodes even to explain each character's backstory and basically where they've come from and, and how they find themselves now in this situation. So again, there's no like limit as to how much backstory you can use, but you know, just bear in mind that when you're using it in your story, don't just use it for the sheer heck of it. You know, if you're writing a romance novel, there's really no need to include a backstory unless it's absolutely pivotal to the story. So for instance, if you have a character that's pretty self reserved uh they, they're not willing to sort of get into another relationship so quickly maybe it's because they've been hurt in the past you know you'd go as far as that but you wouldn't be like oh the reason that you know it, this character isn't with this character is because a massive traumatic event happened i mean if you do that then obviously you're going to have to think long and hard about it to be quite honest because i i don't know anyone who's actually done that and pulled it off but basically what i would do is I would just use the backstory to sort of further solidify that character and the world around them and just focus on that. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't use it unless I really think that it's necessary. But obviously, that's up to you. You know, it's completely in, in your control, as I've mentioned several episodes previous. Okay, so that about wraps it up for this section. And that about wraps it up for this episode. Once again, guys, thank you for tuning in. 
really means the world to us that you would take an hour out of your time to make us a part of it. It really does mean the world to us. Thank you. Of course, we'll endeavour to include the links to anything that's been mentioned uh, in the description below so that you can have access to the information that's been um, mentioned in the episode. Uh, if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure to head on over to another podcast known as Genuine Chit Chat. I've mentioned it in several previous episodes. It's a really good podcast. Uh, it's conversation-based. Normally it lasts about an hour and it includes conversations from all across a range of topics. You know, there's there's no topic off limits. So if you enjoy conversations, getting involved in conversations, listening to people's opinions shared from across a range of topics, be sure to head on over there to Genuine Chit Chat. It's hosted by a friend of mine, Mike Burton. And just be sure to sort of give that a listen because if you've enjoyed this podcast, there's really no reason why you wouldn't enjoy that podcast as well, if not more. So thanks again, guys. Really means the world to us. I'm Wayne Telford, and I'll see you next time.